we think about how clear the scriptures are concerning the second coming of Christ, it becomes even more astonishing and amazing to me to know how much time certain people have spent trying to show or predict when the Lord will come again. And the section we are in at this point in our study on Sunday evenings in 1 Thessalonians simply reinforces that, that truth, the clarity of the teaching of Scripture about the second coming of Christ. Chapter 5, where we begin tonight in verse 1, Paul writes, But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. Now you remember that in the verses that have preceded this before the chapter break, the Apostle Paul had written to correct some misapprehension that the Thessalonians had, many of them, about their loved ones who had died in Christ. They were mistakenly thinking, as you recall, that their Christian loved ones who had died were going to uh, miss out on the reward that awaited those at the second coming of Christ, thinking that Christ was going to come again almost immediately, that is, in their, in their lifetime. And when their Christian loved ones died, they thought, well, they have, they have missed that reward. Paul wrote to say, no, that is not the case. Remember, he wrote to them saying, I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow, as others who have no hope. Because he says, God is going to bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. We who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord are not going to have an advantage, remember he taught, over those who have died. And he used the term sleep, those who are asleep. And then he specifically taught that the Lord himself will descend from heaven, verse 16 of chapter 4, with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Remember we said last time that that supposedly is the verse that teaches the rapture. The silent, remember, snatching away of the saints. And yet we've said it's been called the noisiest verse in Scripture. Because he comes, when he comes, he will come with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, the trumpet of God. It'll be a noisy day indeed. And yet those who believe in the rapture tell us it'll be a silent snatching away. This verse teaches no such thing. The rapture is foreign to Scripture. And then he says, then, then we who are alive and remain, after those who have died in Christ are raised, then all of us will be caught up together in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus in this way we shall always be with the Lord. And that always is important because again the rapture theory teaches that when the rapture takes place they'll be with the Lord for seven years and then they will come back to this earth. The Bible teaches no such thing. And so he then concludes that thought with therefore comfort one another with these words. But now he continues to emphasize that concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. It may be because that when he was with them, he had done some teaching on this subject. And so he goes on to say, For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. Now what is this day of the Lord? The context makes it abundantly clear that the day of the Lord here is the second coming of Christ. That day about which he has written... In the verses we've just reviewed from chapter 4, that day when the Lord will come again. The second coming of Christ is obviously under consideration. There are times in Scripture, especially in the Old Testament, when the day of the Lord is used 
to describe a day of judgment uh, against certain nations, even God's own people, a day of vengeance, a day of, of judgment, a day of reckoning. Uh, but here, the day of the Lord is obviously that day when the Lord will come again. And again, here it is, He will come. You know perfectly well, He says, that the day of the Lord will come how? As a thief in the night. Again, the clarity of the teaching of Scripture concerning the nature of the second coming of Christ. If he is going to come as a thief in the night, then there's no way possible for those who have sought to predict the time when he will come to be able to do so accurately. And yet they keep trying. And you have to wonder why in light of this clear teaching. Well, Paul's not the only one to write on that subject and to make that declaration, is he? Remember Peter's statement in 2 Peter 3 and verse 10? But the day of the Lord, that's that same day about which Paul is writing here. It is the second coming of Christ. He says, but the day of the Lord will come. Here he says it as a thief in the night. And if we have any doubt about the day to which Peter refers, he says in which what? In which day the heavens will do what? Pass away with a great noise. And the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. So the same day of the Lord about which Peter speaks in which he says that day when it occurs will, will, um, will end with the Lord's uh, creation being, being dissolved is the same day of the Lord about which Paul writes here when he says it will come as a thief in the night. And he further elaborates in verse 3 where he says, for when they say, they, that is people, when the people of the world generally he's talking about out here, he's not talking about Christians hopefully, because Christians ought to know better as he's about to point out. But when they, that is the people out here in the world who have no interest in spiritual things, when they are saying at the very time, when they are saying peace and safety, in other words, everything is going so well. And when the last thing on their mind is the sudden destruction that will come at the advent of Jesus Christ, that's the very time, he says, that sudden destruction comes upon them. And then he uses an analogy that is used more than once in Scripture as he uh, compares it to labor pains. He says, as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. There's a time in in Isaiah's writings concerning the destruction of Babylon and the prophecy against Babylon that he uses a, uh, a similar uh, expression, a similar analogy. And as we said earlier, he uses the phrase the day of the Lord not to talk about the day we're talking about here in 1 Thessalonians 5, but a day of judgment. In this case, in Isaiah 13, he's writing about the destruction that's coming upon Babylon. But listen to how he describes it. Verse 6 of Isaiah 13 beginning. Wail, he says, wail, moan, wail, for the day of the Lord is at hand. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Therefore, all hands will be limp. Every man's heart will melt and they will be afraid. Pangs and sorrows will take hold of them. They will be in pain as a woman in childbirth. They will be amazed at one another. Their faces will be like flames. In that context, Isaiah is talking about the destruction that would come upon mighty Babylon, that great kingdom that no doubt thought it would never be destroyed. And yet it would and it was. And he likens it to the pain of childbirth as Paul does here about the great day of the Lord.
That is the coming of Christ. But he makes a contrast here now, beginning in verse 4. In other words, when that day comes, it'll come suddenly. It'll come upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But, he says, here's the contrast. You, brethren, you're different. You are different. Your mindset is different. Your awareness is different. Your whole lives are different. You live your lives differently than those out here in the world upon whom this sudden destruction is going to come. You, brethren, are different because you are not in darkness, he says. You're not in darkness. They are. Those upon whom the sudden destruction comes and they're not even thinking about it, they are not prepared for it, they're not ready for the coming of Christ, those are the ones who are living in darkness. There's the figure that he uses. But you're not in darkness so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You know, if you're at, if you're at home at night and you're sitting there with a shotgun and you see a thief coming, you're not going to be overtaken by that thief, are you? Not at all. You are fully prepared, and you can see him coming. Now, the thief is still going to come. That's the figure that Paul uses. In other words, Christ is going to come as a thief in the night. And that'll be true of those who are Christians as well. It will come suddenly. It'll come suddenly, but you will not be overtaken as they will, because you live differently, your mindset is different, you are prepared. You are what? Look at verse 5. You are all sons of light. That is such a wonderful expression, sons of light. The, it's a Hebrew uh, idiom, the sons of light, a Hebrewism. The idea of being sons of something indicates the close relationship. Uh, and, and association. Christ, the Son of God, equality with God. That's, what, that's what's involved in Christ being the Son of God, the only begotten of the Father. He's equal with God. You're sons of light. In other words, you are so closely associated with the light that the darkness is not going to overtake you. The thief is not going to overtake you. You're sons of light. You're sons of the day. You are not of the night. We are not of the night nor of darkness. That figure of light is a figure that is used uh, so often in Scripture. And Brother Freeman, in his beautiful prayer, used that expression concerning Christians even tonight. Ephesians 5 and verse 8, Paul there says, For you, writing to the Ephesian Christians, for you were once darkness, that's where you once were, but not anymore. You were once darkness, but now you are what? You are light in the Lord. And then he says, walk as children of light. If you are now light in the Lord, having been in darkness, then you need to walk as children of light. How are children of light going to walk? They're going to walk soberly and watchfully. They're going to live in anticipation of the second coming of Christ. Really, every day that we, that we awaken... We should at some point probably think about this could be the very day the Lord comes again. I'm going to make sure I'm ready. We don't need to fall into the ways of those who are in darkness and think nothing about the possibility that this very day could be our last day on earth. Not that we might die, though we might, but it could be our last day because the earth won't be here because the Lord will come and destroy all of his creation. We are not of the night or of darkness. 
Then he uses another figure in verse 6. Therefore, let us not sleep. Let us not sleep. Those who are in darkness are equated with those who are in effect asleep and not awake. Those who are in light are equated with those who are awake. We're in the light and we're wide awake. It's broad daylight and we're wide awake. That's the mindset. Uh, that's the characteristic of the child of God, how he is characterized. He is watchful. And that's what he says here. Therefore, watch, let us watch and be sober. You remember in Matthew uh, 25, we have a beautiful illustration of those who were not awake. You remember the, the parable of the virgins? Then the kingdom of heaven, verse 1, Matthew 25, shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now five of them were wise and five were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps, took no oil with them, but the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. Now look at verse 5. But while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. That parable teaches us the very thing that Paul is teaching in something other than parable form here. He's just teaching it explicitly and saying, let's watch and be sober. Don't be like those who are asleep. Don't be like those who are in darkness. And he further elaborates in verse 7 when he says, For those who sleep, those who sleep, sleep at night. Well, some of us take naps. I took one this afternoon, but generally we sleep at night, don't we? Those who sleep, sleep at night. That's when we get our full night's rest. But then he adds something else. He says, And those who get drunk are drunk at night. Now, that's not some metaphor, that's not some figure of speech, that's just a fact. Generally speaking, it is the case, and in ancient times, probably more so than in our modern time, but generally, drunkenness occurs at night, doesn't it? That's when the revelry takes place. That's when, that's when uh, uh, the crime rate is at its highest, is when it can be covered, hopefully, by darkness. That's when criminals are uh, most active. And that's when those who get drunk... Uh, get drunk generally. And as we said in ancient times, that was very characteristic. You remember that on Pentecost when the gospel was first preached and the apostles began to speak in other languages that they had, uh, that they had never learned. They were accused on that occasion, falsely so, of being drunk. You remember some mocking said they're full of new wine there. And Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to the men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, Let this be known to you and heed my words, for these are not drunk, as you suppose, for it is what? It is but the third hour of the day. It was nine o'clock in the morning. And his point was, you don't get drunk at nine o'clock in the morning. You didn't back then, and you generally don't hear, even those who do drink, probably not going to be drunk at nine o'clock in the morning. So Paul is saying this revelry, this drunkenness, it takes place at night, and of course Peter was not saying that the apostles, had it been night, might have gotten drunk. Well, certainly not. He just simply used that expression because it was well known at that time that that's when the drunkenness occurred. So those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk are drunk at night. Here's the contrast again, though, in verse 8. But let us who are of the day be what? Not drunk, but here's the contrast, be sober. Not drunk, but sober, completely sober. And now he uses a term, an expression that we find him using with variation in Ephesians chapter 6. Something Paul was fond of doing, the armor, remember? 
He says, let those who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate. Putting on the breastplate here of what? Of faith and love and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. If you go back to Ephesians 6 where that whole armor of God is so familiar to us there, um, he talks about helmet, uh, the helmet of salvation. But in that uh, particular passage, it's the shield of faith, remember? The shield of faith and the breastplate that he uh, refers to in Ephesians 6 is the breastplate of righteousness. But I thought that was interesting. You think about the breastplate of righteousness that he mentions in Ephesians 6. Here he says the breastplate of faith and love. But is there really a distinction between the breastplate of righteousness and the breastplate of faith and love? What is it that constitutes righteousness? If you are righteous, what is it that makes you righteous? And remember, righteousness is just doing right. But what is it that's going to cause you to do right? Faith and love. Faith and love are going to bring about or constitute righteousness. You can't be righteous without faith, and you can't be righteous without love. You can't be righteous without love. Because those who are of God are those who love. Because God is love. And remember John wrote that he who does not love does what? Does not know God. You can't know God without love. You can't be righteous without love. But without faith it is what? Hebrews eleven six. Impossible to please him. Therefore I think it's interesting that here he says the breastplate of faith and love. In Ephesians 6 it's the breastplate of righteousness. But really they are equivalent in the sense that faith and love constitute righteousness. And it reminds me of another passage from the pen of Paul in Galatians 5 and verse 6, where, as I have mentioned before, I believe we find the greatest summary statement one could find in succinct fashion about the Christian and what the Christian is and what he's all about. There he writes, But in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith which works by love. Faith and love. Faith what? Motivated by what? Love. What is the supreme motivation for our living the Christian life? It should be love. Love should motivate us to what? Act in accordance with that love by what? Faith. What kind of faith? A faith that works. A working faith. And so again, he returns to the figure of the armor of God with some slight variation, but really with the same uh, concept, I believe, being conveyed here. Righteousness is constituted by faith that works motivated by love. And the helmet is the hope of salvation. Don't ever lose sight of that hope. What is hope as we've often talked about it from Scripture? It is desire coupled with expectation. The Christian has the desire to go to heaven, but he expects to go there. And he can expect to go there because of his faith and love because of the righteousness that he knows that he has not based on his own merit but based on his compliance with the will of God we can know that we know him if we keep his commandments and look at verse 9 he says for God after right after mentioning salvation the hope of salvation he says for God or because God did not appoint us to wrath he didn't appoint us to wrath God did not ordain us to be lost. He didn't appoint us to be lost. He doesn't desire for us to be lost. In fact, he desires just the opposite, doesn't it? How many times have we mentioned 1 Timothy 2 and verse 4? 
For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be what? Lost? Well, of course not. All men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. That's exactly what Paul is affirming here. He's saying God did not appoint us to wrath, that is, to be the subjects of his wrath, to be the subject of his condemnation. He didn't appoint us. It's not his desire. It's not his determination for us to be lost. Does that mean that God will save us all simply because he doesn't want us to be lost? Of course not. But it is not what God has in mind, in other words. And he's done everything that he possibly can to cause us to be saved. He didn't appoint us to be lost or to his wrath, but rather what? To obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And notice that word, obtain salvation. He doesn't say to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, wouldn't be anything wrong with that because we'd know what Paul meant when he wrote it. But it's interesting that he says to obtain. That indicates there is something we must do. That indicates there is a part that we must play in order to obtain that salvation. And it is completely consistent with what he wrote in another of his epistles in Philippians 2 and verse 12. Remember, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, listen to it, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And then he adds, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. There's the, there's the combination. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling because God is working in you, working with you, as it were, for his good pleasure. And his good pleasure is what? That you be saved. That's what he wants for you to be saved. And he is working in you to bring about that salvation. How? Through his word. And if you'll take that word in and you'll live that word out in your life, work out your own salvation, you'll work together with God to bring about what God desires for all of us. What is it? Salvation, not wrath. God does not want us to be condemned. He wants us all to be saved. Doesn't that say something about the mercy and love of God? Of course it does. God is not some dictatorial tyrant. He is a God of love. He is a God of mercy, but he is also a God of justice. And he will, he will mete out that justice to those who do not avail themselves of his mercy and his love and respond to it in obedience to the gospel of Christ. Salvation through whom? Through our Lord Jesus Christ, who did what? Verse 10, who died for us, that what? Whether we're alive or dead, when he comes again, that's what he's saying. Whether we wake or sleep, whether we are alive or dead, when he comes again, will not make any difference at all in terms of our salvation. If we died in Christ and we're dead when he comes, we'll be raised and we'll live together with him. What a promise. What a promise. Is it any wonder then that his next words are these? Therefore comfort one another. Comfort each other. Comfort each other. Comfort each other with, with these words. Similar to what he said back in verse 18 of chapter 4. Therefore comfort one another with these words. Here he is again saying, therefore comfort each other. And do what? Here's another word. Comfort each other, but also do what? 
edify one another, which means to do what? To build each other up. You know, it's not enough for us to just uh, determine that we're just not going to say or do anything to hurt anybody's feelings here at White Oak. I'm just going to I'm just going to kind of make sure that I don't do anything to uh, or say anything that would hurt anybody. That's good. That's a good, that's a good goal, but it's not sufficient. That's not enough, is it? Because it's not just avoidance of saying or doing anything that would be hurtful. We've got to actively do what? Say and do those things that will build each other up. That's what he's saying here. You can't just avoid hurting. You've got to be actively helping building each other up, edifying one another, comforting one another. That, that's what we're to be about as the body of Christ. And then he says, just as you also are doing. He complimented them, commended them for the fact that they were doing it, but he emphasized keep up the good work is what he was saying. And that's what I would encourage all of us here at White Oak to do, keep up the good work. I believe there's a lot of comforting that's going on here. I believe there's a lot of edifying that is going on here. I know there is. And we need to keep it up. We need to keep it up. Because it is so vitally important to our ultimate salvation and to the strength that we need to withstand whatever this world out here tries to deal us. We can handle it. We can deal with it. If we'll stay together, comfort one another, and build each other up. But you know the greatest way you could build me up tonight, the greatest way you could edify me would be to become a Christian if you're not a Christian. And I, can, I think I speak for everyone here who's a Christian, that if there's someone here who's not a Christian, the greatest thing you could do to encourage us would be to become a Christian. But that's not the main reason to become a Christian, is it? main reason to become a Christian is to save your precious soul. And so if you haven't done those things that would do that, bring about that salvation, you haven't obtained that salvation, the only way you can is by the only plan that Jesus gave, and that is a belief in him as the Christ that will lead you to repent of your sins, confess him as the Christ, and to be buried with him in baptism for the remission of sins. If you need to come home to your first love, oh, how comforting and edifying that would be to us to have a wayward child of God if one is present here tonight to come home to his or her first love. But again... That's not the main reason for coming home. The main reason for coming home is to be able to go home when this life is over for your precious soul. But for all who need no repentance, let us take so seriously the admonition of the Apostle Paul to these Thessalonian brethren to comfort one another and to keep that up and to build one another up and to edify one another up in the most holy faith because truly it's such a vital part of our Christian life. Tonight, if you need to respond to the Lord's invitation, we plead with you to come now as we stand to sing to encourage you.